And welcome to Writing the Rapids, the Mike Klein episode. I'm your host, Joe Balecki. And this month, like I said, I talked to Mike Klein. Dude is fascinating. He does video games. He does novels. He does plays. We talk about projects he has upcoming. We didn't even touch his music really at all, except in passing, which is something I regret. In fact, there's a lot of things that going into the conversation I wanted to talk to him about, but I just spent so much time listening to him because he has such an interesting way of looking at things that I really didn't even need to steer the conversation. I just sort of wound him up and let him go, and it was awesome. It was it was a wonderful experience just to sit here and listen to him talk. Before I get into the interview, I want to let you know that the Patreon page for Writing the Rapids is up and running right now. There's a bunch of good rewards, there's some cool goals. The more gas you put in the tank, the farther the car will go. So if that's something that you want to do, have the means to do, that is something I encourage you to do. If not, no worries, the show's always going to be here. I'm going to do it till I drop dead because I love it. So let's get into the interview right now. Patreon.com slash WTR. how you would classify your work. And I have the question because I was reading an old interview with your of yours right around the time Canley Stubert came out and people were talking about your connection to Bizarro fiction, um, but you at the time didn't seem to feel that connected. At least didn't feel like your writing was, was necessarily Bizarro. Yeah, uh, uh, that's, a, that's a good question. I answer it bluntly. I would say that my um, my writing is just, I, I would say that in the broadest sense possible. And um, even right now to this day, I still would not categorize it as bizarro um, because there are only a few bizarro imprints. I think there's maybe three or four of them. And I would leave the label to those imprints and almost say that if you are not releasing through any of those four imprints, do not call your work bizarro because um, they've worked very hard to get to the point where they are and they actually just won an award on um, i forget which award it was but it was with some horror it was a pretty big deal um and i don't think they would have a problem with people associating their own work as bizarre without being on one of those imprints but with the knowledge that i i take people and leave it to them um, so then, yeah, in that sense, it's since it's kind of hard to explain my writing to even people I work with, I just always say it's fiction, first and foremost. And then once we get into specifics of anything, that's when I start revealing what it actually really is about without trying to confuse the listener. I gotcha. <clears throat> um, but, okay, if if I if I held a gun to your head and I said you have to come up with with a sub genre title for it, what would you call it? Uh, I um, if I had to, I would say it's mm, perhaps 
have icons because I'll be and I'll focus on that, and that's what I will try to. So, for instance, um, Mastodon form. I would say, in if I had to use as few words as possible, I would say it's about celebrity culture. Um, that's the first book. The second one, Here at Mountain, I would say it's about religion. Um, and then Candy Stewart, the third book, I would say is about love. Um, so I'm able to pick something very specific, and even though it may not always be immediately apparent as you begin reading the work, um, if you remember that word or words that I use to describe the work, as you're reading it, it manifests itself. Um, and, um, yeah, so I would say that, I mean, it sounds like I'm reducing it to just those that word or those words, but yeah, I would say it's high-concept literature um, because it's never, oh, Harry meets, you know, Amanda and they fall in love and this is their story growing up or, you know, living somewhere else. It's always, there's always more than that going on. And the characters that I create, I feel, don't always necessarily represent human characters. Um, they, they have, they may have a set of values or a set of characteristics that resemble humans, but they don't necessarily always mean that they're human characters. And that's something that I like to have happen with the work. And I also like to hear people's interpretation of certain things I do because there's a certain vague quality to my work that's there on purpose because I don't want to um, bash into your head, this is how it needs to be, this is how you must see it. Because um, I, I really do appreciate the idea that every single person who ever reads anything has a different background and a different um, set of understandings, and I want to learn from that as well. Uh, so I always enjoy having discussions about anything I've written that somebody has read and they have reacted either strongly to it or they've had they wanted to ask a question just to see what I was thinking when I wrote it. And then usually from there, the discussion we have um, sort of influences or informs No heck. <clears throat> Are you still there? Yes, yes, I'm still there. Okay, your, your mic cut out after you said the word informs. Informs. Um, any discussion that we have about my work usually influences or informs anything else that I do moving forward. Gotcha. Okay. Well, that makes sense. That that's a uh, high concept isn't is not a term that I think about, and I don't know why, uh, because it makes so much sense to hear you explain it. Uh, maybe maybe I'm just caught up in this weird, like post genre hell of. Everything needs to be, um, like, post-post-modernism with a sort of visceral, surreal bent to it. Uh, back in the day, I used to do a, a music podcast, and I was always trying to find, like, the, like, a sub-sub-sub-genre. So it was, like, deep post-metalcore uh, wave. And like, what is that? There's like two two bands that have ever released anything that could be considered that. Um, there's that website, everynoise.com, that is constantly being updated and is mapped out algorithmically. Yeah. So maybe that's just kind of where my brain has been stuck in. Well, I mean, everything you're saying makes sense, and I am familiar with that website. Um, I guess my, my um, aversion to labeling what I write is also out of... It's not an anger, but it's just a realization that when you label anything, if you label something you've done or something you like as a certain thing, everybody has a different understanding of that. So when you said, you know, post, post, whatever, 
my understanding of that may I might think that's cool, whereas somebody standing next to me might be wondering, hmm, I don't know what that is, and I never want to know what that is, so I never will take the opportunity to find out what that is. Um, so I've discovered, or I guess, I guess you know, quote unquote, my own adventures talking to people. It's easier when you just reduce it to the most, um, the most basic and vague term possible. Oh, is going back to saying fiction because then I think it it, it um, encourages people to discover what that is. And usually after the fact, they come back and say, "Oh, that's not what I expected at all." And that's either usually a good or bad thing. But from a marketing standpoint, they always at least check. Well, not always, but nine times out of ten, they're more with five. I just jumped in and specifically said exactly what each thing was because it might turn off a lot of people. And also, I mean, time is a valuable thing, and a lot of people are not going to invest time into something that doesn't even interest them a little bit, if any of that makes sense. Yeah, I, I totally understand that. Uh, that sort of brings me into another thing that I, I noticed. At least I the, the only books of yours that I've read are Ken Lee Stubrick and Every Fat Mountain. But I noticed with surprise, and my wife can attest to this, when I opened the package, uh, I saw how small Canley Stubrick was and and uh, made a note about that. And is is that something you think about when you think about book length? Um, yeah, yeah. You mean like the actual just number of pages? Yes. Um, yes, yeah, yeah. So um, I... I I, this is also me thinking for the reader. I realize that a lot of people these days probably don't want to sit down and read a thousand pages from a writer that no one has ever heard of or has not really, you know, done anything substantial with their writing. Not that that's a bad or good thing, but um, I also sometimes describe my books as, you know, books for people who don't necessarily like to read because you finish them in an afternoon if you wanted to. And, um, People that I know in real life who have read my books who are not familiar with anything I've done have usually come back saying, oh, that was pleasant in the fact that they were able to read it very quickly, whether they liked it or not. Um, and usually my drafts are about three or four times the length of the final book. Uh, I know that my very first one, Mastodon Farm, was about 300 pages long, and it went through a series of revisions as far as the, um, the perspective goes. Um, same thing with Arafat Mountain, about, I would say, twice as long. I reduced a lot. What I do is I just write a certain way because I want to do that, and then I go back to it. And um, after something just sort of manifests itself, and I see it in a different light. And usually that's from after coming back to the work, maybe months later, and then within a short amount of time, I'm able to, you know, figure out exactly what I want to do with it. But yeah, I do keep in mind the length. Um, I think the longest work I've done up to this point was Arafat Mountain. Um, but next month I have uh, Lonely Men Club, which is going to be about 720 pages, it looks like right now. So that's going to be the longest one. But that also was done with that length in mind. Okay. Uh, Lonely Men Club is, I think, the thing that I discovered you through. Um, I think, I think I discovered inside the castle because of that digital residency that they were doing um and then came back to it trying to figure out who had won and found out that you won and and from there started researching your work so i'm really interested to know what that process 
of of writing uh that book was like because of the parameters yeah um the um let me see here oh and also i forgot to say thank you for i'm um, also reading uh air fat mountain and canley stewart i appreciate that oh of course no i love them they're great books <laughs> thank you um yeah no the so for the last i would say 18 months i i, I got bored with writing because every single time I write something new, I want to, and I'm, everyone everyone says this, and, and I and I believe it. I, I try to do something different um, because I don't want to get this, this habit of just doing the same thing over and over again. Um, and I, I looking back at all three of my books in that play that I wrote, um, the mystery of the seventeen pilot fish. I can honestly say that I feel that I did something different with each one of them, and I don't regret any of them. But I got to a point where I didn't know where to go next. Um, so I would look around. I, I don't like submitting to um, journals or online websites for short stories or anything like that because um, I, I don't know. I don't. I don't really feel like I get anything from that, and I don't really know what I'm trying to get out of um, what I do with the books, other than having conversations with people. But I just feel like this day, um, I like. I'd rather write a short novel than to write a short story because. I feel that when I write short stories, the only people reading those are the other people who submitted to that website. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I don't think there's any dialogue that usually stems from that. You might just get like a congratulations or a, hey, uh, here's a Twitter post. I like this story. But then nothing other than that really ever happens for me. Um, and I'd rather um, go with the dialogue that comes from writing a longer work because then people usually have more questions. And also the act, the physical... Um, act of holding something in your hand I really enjoy as well but to answer your question about lonely men club I was looking for something next to do and I stumbled across um, inside the castle I had heard of inside the castle maybe a year ago because um, M Kitchell had re- released a book called hour of the wolf on there which I was already familiar with he had released that on his imprint solar luxuriance I'm not sure if you're familiar with him mm, no. Kitchell. Nope. no okay um, he, he's a very interesting person who I've never actually met in real life. We've interacted on the internet a few times, but he's really good friends with um, Jared Kobeck, who is with We Heard You Like Books, and that's the imprint that um, Candy Stewart came out on. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I got to hear more about him after I met Jared in real life. We've hung out a few times since then, um, and I just really like the direction that um, M. Kitchell goes, and he writes his own stuff, he designs his own book covers, he... He, um, he takes photos that are really interesting to look at. Um, but anyway, yeah, so I, that's how I had kept, I had kept Inside the Castle in the back of my mind. At that point, they did not have that residency for the Castle Free. But I just made a note to always check out whatever was coming out next. So, I mean, books were coming out, and I, I, I liked the idea of each of them. But then suddenly there was this um, post, I think it was on Twitter, where Inside the Castle said, hey, there's this thing called uh, Castle Freak Residency if you're interested. So I was like, oh, maybe this is the next thing that I'll do. So I clicked on it, and every single thing about the residency goes against anything I've ever done. Um, you, it's, you're supposed to write this work that's 100,000 words long. Um, I think that the average length of my books is maybe anywhere from, <laughs> from 12,000 to 20,000 words. Um, you're supposed to have a computer help you write the words. I like to be in control of everything I write. I don't like this randomness to anything. 
there are a ton of other parameters, but I said, you know what, I'm going to try this and whether I fail or not, that's part of the product. Um, you're almost destined to have something regardless. So I spent about three weeks writing my proposition, which essentially was going to be that I'm going to use this program called Twine. Um, I'm not sure, I don't think a lot of people are familiar with Twine. Um, and even people who are familiar with Twine, you wouldn't use or associate Twine to what I did. And all it is, it's a, it's a program that was designed by one person to write um, basically interact, interactive fiction on the computer. So you say, you know, uh, X person is in a room, you go left, you go right. So you can click on left, you can click on right, and then it takes you to the next sequence. Um, that's nice, but uh, I realized a lot of people are doing that. And it, there, there, it's that market all, itself is oversaturated with the same thing. So there's this interesting feature in Twine where you can actually have one sentence and then you can put as many different permutations in that sentence and it'll always be a random sentence. So I can say I'm going to eat the apple pie, but then the word apple can be changed into cherry or, or lemon, lemon um, meringue or key lime. And you can do that as many times as you want for any word. So essentially that's what I did. I came up with about, I think 300 or 400 prompts for Lonely Men Club. And within those prompts, which are also just sentences, I would change maybe seven or ten words in that sentence so i got to a point where i was running these tests and i would run the same sentence over and over for about three or four hundred turns and i would only get a repeat of maybe just one or two words after three or three or four hundred times of running that sentence so that's when i got to a point where i decided this is what i want to do so essentially in a in a simple way lonely men club is about the zodiac killer which i've been fascinated with for years um I, he he or she, whatever, the Zodiac Killer actually featured in Air Fat Mountain, um, if you remember. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah. I decided to, and I've always wanted to ded- dedicate an entire book to just the Zodiac Killer, whether it would be through research or speculative fiction or just fiction or a fake biography. I didn't care. So in this sense, uh, Lonely Men Club is going to be almost a journal of um, the, the musings and, and, and inner thoughts of the Zodiac Killer as the Zodiac Killer carries on living from 1968 all the way up to 2018. I was originally going to divide each section by years, um, but I decided not to do that because the idea of the work was for you to be able to open it up anywhere and read it from any place on the page and continue to stop wherever you want. Um, but essentially, yeah, it's, it's just this, um, this really messed up way of looking at the the diary or the um there, there's this thing called pillow books where people have dreams and they wake up and write down what their dreams are it's almost a mishmash of that as well but i really just want it to be whatever people want it to be for themselves um and i think the length is going to allow that to happen because i doubt very many people are going to read it all the way through um i already have two or three people that have read it all the way through and they've told me what they think which is very interesting but um, yeah, th- this was a challenge in the purest sense of the word, um, and I-, I didn't enjoy all of it, but now that I'm hearing back from people, have, after having been invested in it for so long, it's actually pleasant to hear what they are getting from it, because that's exactly what I wanted to hear. Good. I I remember seeing some of the, the screenshots of pages, and I think that's a good format for based on what i know of of the zodiac uh how how his whole deal was being cryptic and whatnot um yeah 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 yeah, there's a lot of that um 
you bring up a good point. I, I always skim over that because I talked to John, um, who runs inside the castle, and he he, he mentioned how um, he's talked to other people, and whenever they actually see parts of the book, they um, it's it's always a surprise to them, which I think is a good thing now because I actually wrote this essay, I think eight pages long, that we're going to be printing soon here, and it's supposed to come out right before the book is released, which sort of explains my process and sort of because um, up to this point, no one really knows what it's about or what it is because we haven't really talked about that to anyone and we want it to be a surprise but the essay is going to give more insight on how i created the book and why i did it the way i did um i don't know if i can say where that's going to come out yet because uh, i haven't gotten the green light but it, it is going to be coming up this month i um, mean it's 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 going to be good um as far as um, shedding light on the whole project i mean i'm very excited for that but yes there are a lot of visual elements in the book i would say it's probably 40% visuals and 60% text. Um, and you know, I, I do believe there is no repetition in the book, but if there is, it's unintentional. Um, but then a lot of the visual stuff also happened by way of pro the process, because I literally, I didn't stay up for five days straight, but I was sleeping less than I usually do, which isn't very much anyway, but um, I was doing things I would never normally do if I had you know, gotten eight hours of sleep every night, because um, I had to do all this in five days. And I was also using a program um, that I'm not very familiar with. I was using Microsoft Publisher, which I thought would be similar to using InDesign, but it's not the same. So there were a lot of restrictions that sort of um, guided me to do certain things that I normally would not have done on my own. And I think that the restriction of being on a deadline caused certain creative elements to manifest themselves. But yes, people who have seen the book so far always make comments on the visuals. Um, because that really um, surprises them, because there really is no mention of that, and you don't really expect that hearing about the book or seeing even just the cover, which no one has seen the cover yet except for John, um, and we still are working on two or three different designs, um, which I'm also, I'm not actually the cover, um, but I have these three different, I don't know which one to go with. He likes all three of them, so I'm also... Um, excited to hear what people think or see the reaction when the cover comes out because the cover is also not going to be what is expected for this type of work awesome that's super exciting i'm i was excited anyway and and now i'm more excited and i'm uh googling around here uh i do somebody an old friend of mine or something recommended i use twine uh I had I had a small errant desire to try to do simple game design, and they they suggested Twine as as sort of a way to help go about doing that. So you're not absolutely you're not completely alone. Can you do you want to talk about your game design at all? Because that's another thing I find really really interesting: the way that you tell your stories through games. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Um. Essentially, I did research last year to um i've always wanted to try game design i mean i've been trying to do it for years but when you're given so many um liberty you could essentially be working on the same thing forever and no one will ever see it which for me is one of the scariest things i don't like the idea of keeping all this work whether it's music or audio or um writing or anything and just having no one ever see it for some people that works, but I mean, for me, like, again, like I said, my biggest thing is just having a dialogue going on, regardless of the dialogue. Um, so for game design, uh, the first, uh, I was trying to find a list of the easiest programs to use to really just get into it, because I wanted to 
just create quick things. Just get them done and see what happens. Um, the first one I found was Twine. Twine is really this one. I, I can't recommend that enough for any person who wants to tell a story. Um, whether it's a writer or a video game developer who is having, you know, issues with their current program, because you can just, you could make something in literally two minutes. Um, Twine, so Twine was the first one. I made a bunch of things for myself, oddly enough, just to see if it would work out. And then I spent about a year working on the one Twine game that I have out on Always Crashing, um, because that one came to, I had a game that was, that one was maybe five minutes the length of where it is now. And I, and I tested it with, I think, 10 different people who had read my previous works and were very interested in whatever I was doing next. So I emailed them the link to the game and uh, gave them a, a, and I said, just, you know, read it and play it several times. Let me know what you think. And it was positive for all of them. They, none of them had any they wanted me to make. So that's when I decided, hey, this is done. So I submitted it to Always Crashing, and it's on the website right now. Um, and you can play the game. Um, and it's it's just this thing where I think there's six different mini stories, and every single time you play it, it changes a lot. Or it always, it's constantly rotating and changing, and, and, and the story is never the same. Um, that was the, the first program. The most recent one that I discovered is one called Bitsy, B-I-T-S-Y. Um, and what that is, it's similar in Twine as far as how it um, strips out a lot of elements from game design. You literally have... I think 64 tiles that you can design on, and each tile can be a, uh, it can be a, an object or a character or a background. And then when you move, um, it, it's not a fluid movement; it's like one frame per second, and it's kind of like those <clears throat> those old Spectrum ZX games. And when you're designing a character or a tile or a background, you are limited to um, these little pixels, and you can't. I mean, they don't. You can't really make them look like anything detailed. Um, but some of the more interesting games out there, what they do is they take several different um, boxes or pixels and make it look into one big thing, which, I mean, right now may not make sense. But try using Bitsy. It becomes impressive seeing what other people are able to do. Um, but anyway, with, with, with Bitsy, um, what you do is there's also a, an element of randomness that you can assign in that, in that engine, which is what I always gravitate toward. Um, so I can have a character walk up to another character and every single time you you can walk up and ask or say something or the character will say something to you and if you walk away and come back every single time it'll say he'll he or she or it will say something different to you and that's what fascinates me because i i, I like this idea that if somebody is playing i know that there will be one person out there who will keep going back to that same point or character just to see how many different characters or say until they run out and, and you realize it's a game and I try to not have that happen. Um, no matter how small the character is in the game, how small of a part they have, I always try to make it seem as if they're a real character, which wastes a lot of my time because no one, most people aren't even going to care about that. I watched someone on YouTube, someone posted a video on YouTube playing one of the games I made recently, and a lot of the stuff they would walk by, and in my mind I was going, no, go back and try that, or, or you know, run into that thing again. It's going to be different. But it makes me realize that what a lot of people do, what a lot of people do, which is fine, um, but yeah, I've made three games with Bitsy. I did all of those within a two or three week period. So I recommend Bitsy a lot as well. If you want to move away from just text and you are willing to design um, some graphics, you don't have to be an artist. It's, it's just literally pixels. Um, anyone can do that. So that's a Bitsy. Um, and then RPG Maker, which everyone is familiar with, I bought 
two weeks, no, three weeks ago. I wanted to do something with it, but then I realized very quickly that it's a little too limiting and it focuses too much on the fighting, which I don't care about. So I moved away from that, and right now, the the the, the um the engine that I'm using is an engine called Adventure Game Studio, which is um from Eng- it's a guy from England who designed it. It's free. I um, mean, it's literally what it sounds like. It's the most old point-and-click adventure games from the 90s and 80s, and those were some of my favorite games. The tedious thing about this is you literally do have to design your art from scratch. Um, there really is nothing to, like with RPG Maker, you can have these preset um, sprites or graphics, but with Adventure Game Studio, you literally are just given this tool, and you have to make your own characters and your own um, graphics. Which is very satisfying because once you get in this routine, you discover what you want to do. It becomes very fulfilling, but there's also a huge um, curve for people who don't do art. Um, so yeah, at the moment, I'm trying to make this adventure game that isn't really going to be an adventure game. But again, there's also an element of randomness in this engine that you can appropriate to characters and what they say, and that's really what I'm focused on right now. It's, it's pretty much 80%. I want to focus on the dialogue and the atmosphere. And 20%, you know, the story and the character. I just want to get this one element to be exactly where I want it to be, and then the game will sort of manifest itself from there. Um, and then if that becomes a success, then I'm just going to move on to a different engine until I eventually get to 3D graphics. Um, so that's been taking up a lot of my time. I don't know if I'm going to be writing anything after this, uh, but I'm focusing more on the game side because the game um, aspect, you also get a lot of dialogue immediately as soon as you release something people will reach out to you more quickly than a book because people are willing to you know set aside 20 minutes for a game as opposed to an hour or two for a book yeah absolutely that's um do you ever watch the uh the youtube show mostly walking i you know what that's funny i was since i'm watching all these old adventure game videos i saw that show up in the recommended videos but i did not click on it okay um they they have some pretty good analysis usually they're all um game people i think they all have master's degrees in various forms of game design um it's hosted by wow. day nine who was a pro starcraft brood war player for a long time um okay and he does he does a bunch of stuff but but it's interesting to watch them sort of fumble around with adventure games and get frustrated with with the way that 90s adventure game puzzles are designed yeah yeah <laughs> yeah that's one of the draws yeah, because there there are there's i think there's a list of the top 10 most ridiculous um uh, adventure game puzzles and that's what fascinates me as well you know yeah that it's almost like they designed the game the way a discovery writer will write which is yeah. <laughs> okay it makes sense to have him pick up a stick here and then four weeks into designing the story later. Man, he's still got this stick. I need to have him do something with a stick. I guess we'll have him pick a lock with the stick. I know he has a key as well, but the stick is actually going to be, because we just need to get that out of his inventory. Yeah. I mean, and you're you're right. The thing is, um, another thing of those games is you just, you you literally click an item in the inventory and you just click it with everything else. And one of them will, will, uh, will do something. And, I don't know if I want to do that because I, I think it'd be funny to have a game that is, that is unplayable where you have to use a strategy guide because the top 10 games from the 90s that were the best adventure games, King's Quest 
you know, Night eight or whatever, mm-hmm. or um, Gabriel Knight two, you had to have a strategy guide at some point because some of those have the most ridiculous puzzles that do not make any sense logically. And that was part of the appeal because uh, certain people, if they could figure it out, thought they were geniuses. Others would just go into the game knowing that you know, half an hour in, after they've appreciated the graphics and the sound or whatever, they would have to pull out that strategy guide. Um, and I think that I might want to hone in on that because I do like the absurdity of it. I can't think of another genre within gaming that, that has sort of allowed that to happen where the players have accepted it as part of the, the actual game. Yeah, I think the initial reason for doing that was as a form of piracy protection. Because oh, yeah. because if you need the strategy guide, you're less likely to just torrent the the game file from somewhere or, you know, steal the floppy disk from a store or buy it at a garage sale because you know that you need to have bought the box and get all the feelies that come with it. And that's true, because I, I, I mean, there was a game, there are actually several games when I was growing up that my dad had bought, um, and there are these old DOS games, and they came with these codes where you, whenever you load up the game or you go to a different level, it asks you, you know, match up A with F and R and P, and then if you, it's, it's these little radial things that you turn, and as you turn it, it reveals the code that you're supposed to type into the computer. And yeah, back then, this is before... I mean, the internet was happening, but you had to go on these forums, or um, USENET, they were called, U-S-E-N-E-T, um, and, um, and then you would have to ask someone, or someone would have to have had that and taken the time to type in every single possible code that there is available for that to happen. I mean, nowadays, people can do that digitally, but yeah, no, you're right. All these games, especially the company Infogrames from England, it might have been the U.S. It was, I don't remember, but... They were big into that. You bought the game, and you didn't just get a game. I mean, you'd have like four or five floppy disks that it came with, but then you would also get this code book. You would get the manual. You'd get a storybook. You'd get this 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 you know, a mini a miniature of the character from the game. You'd get a map. Get a, it, it was it was a heavy box every single time. And I remember these these were when, when manuals were maybe four hundred pages long. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I remember there was a game growing up. I can't remember anything about the game except that we got stuck pretty early on, but it had a uh, cardboard magnifying glass with with red, like a, a, a red gel that you would hold up to the screen and it would sort of decrypt barcodes that would appear on the screen. And it sounds about right, yeah. <laughs> I really like the, those ideas that you make the media tangible and real. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you don't get that anymore. Yeah, uh, I, I I talked about um, House of Leaves, I think, I think on the last episode, but I really like the idea that you have to physically turn the book 90 degrees to read some of the footnotes that are in there. And so the book becomes an object that is necessary to the experience of consuming the story yeah yeah and i mean you're gonna get a lot of that in lonely men club as well um john mentioned that how yeah we want we want lonely men club to become this object that i don't think we're going to be able to make it a kindle or even an audiobook so yeah the idea is that the only way to experience this is you have to have it in your hands and then after that however you experience it entirely yeah, I um, that's one of the things that that always prevents me from 
thinking about submitting to Inside the Castle is, is John's constant um, book as object or a book that knows it's a book. It's really intimidating. It, it is. And I mean, he's, he's, he's pretty much, he's, he's actually gone on record. So on Twitter, where he responds to these prompts that certain people throw out and he like gives the complete opposite. So it's like, you know, um, one prompt might say, hey, design a book in, in um, completely using Comic Sans. And then he'll say, you know, maybe design a book where the, 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 the font is illegible. You're, you know what you're writing, but no one can ever read it. And then release it on, you know, paper, black paper and the ink is black as well. Um, and there's no way to read it, but then release 800 pages of that. Um, and it's not that he's going against like what is considered normal. I think that he, he wants, he likes to say things and do things that make you think of something else. And then from there, they're, 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 something new arises because, um, so I met him in person two months ago and we just sat there and talked, actually we walked around and talked because he's an architect. So he's really big into art, um, looking at buildings, architecture, and I'm just fascinated, but I know nothing about any of that. So we walked around six hours and i would just point at a building talk about it for five minutes and then i would ask other questions and then we would talk about literature somehow in, in the middle of all that and then he would say something that i've never heard before and i would say something that he's never heard before and then we would just go into this um this this conversation that we both of us didn't um sort of expect and that's what i really enjoyed about talking to him because i could definitely see who that inside the castle came from this type of person and you can tell that he spent a long time thinking about what he wanted inside the castle to be before he even did it um and this whole twitter and internet thing is new to him because he did a lot of he would just do it he would do writing and reading of material on his own without going on the internet but he's realized that now you sort of have to have an online presence to have people um you know know about what you're doing um, but other than that, everything else he does is pretty unorthodox. And, I mean, I'm all for it. And I would say that Inside the Castle is no longer in the early stages of, of its existence. It's, it, it's, it's exiting that beginning stage. It's in the middle point now where there's a large enough repertoire of authors that you can sort of get a sense of the body of work. There's still a lot of great stuff coming out after next month that I'm really excited for because I've seen some of it. Um, and also just the ideas that he has, and he's told me who he's talked to that you know might be publishing next year, and all these people that are approaching inside the castle now because they are realizing what it's trying to do. And um, I do get what you're saying; it's intimidating because it is very different from what anybody else is doing. I, I truly do think that. Um, but I also think that that's what the appeal is, and that's what's um, challenging people to do what they wouldn't normally, such as myself. Um, I know there are a couple authors on the press that. Have always been doing what 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 um, always the castles kind of after, which is why or inside the castle, sorry, not always, which is why um, it was so easy for them to just naturally create something for inside the castle. But I would say the rest of the the group um, have never done anything like what they have on the press. And John just has this way of easing you into that because I three times during the writing of after no actually after we had written I had written Lonely Men Club. And he's looking at it and laying it out. I, 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 on three separate occasions, I just got up and said, no, I, I can't, I don't want this anymore. Let's cancel it. And then he would have to talk me back into it for a long time. It would take days sometimes where he would explain to me why he thinks this mistake should stay in there because that's how it was supposed to be or how this typo was part of the process. And it shows that, you know, 
what I did is really what I did, and it wasn't some artificial method, or I didn't I didn't make it I wanted to. It just it, it organically manifested itself. And I, I mean, I don't know how he does it, but he convinced me on three separate several several um, separate occasions not to cancel the project because I was really apprehensive because I'm all about the control, and literally, Lonely Men Club was about losing control, and then grabbing all that, putting it in a jar, and showing everyone what it meant to lose control and come back from that. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah it, that's what it was like talking to him. Yeah, it's one of those things where, at least for me, I, I have no no concept of like a writing community, uh, nor really a desire to find one. But it's always it's it's always a really strange feeling when you happen upon somebody in in this writing world that gets it beyond the way that you thought you got it like let me if i can rephrase like you, you know you meet a person you're like oh man you get it like you and i are on the same wavelength um but then it's interesting to meet a person who's like two or three delineations beyond that wavelength that you're on yeah <laughs> i know exactly what you mean i mean for me the, it's most of the conversations I have that have to do with writing are online or in writing, so I never actually say any of it out loud. So when I'm actually talking to someone about it, like right now, um, even though we're not meeting in real life, I get excited in a way where I'm not. I don't. I hope I'm not coming off as like, oh, I'm really excited. I, I can talk about this forever. But it's just that it's all these ideas that I never say out loud. And as I'm seeing them, they make me realize other things that I've wanted to always talk about and just see what the other person is going to say. But no, I know what you mean about um, you get on you're on this certain wavelength, and you feel like they're three or four delineations or steps away from you. Um, and every single person I've met in real life that's published something I've written, I felt that way because, and that's why I published it because, for for me, there has to be a certain level of they get it more than I do. That's why I'm I'm, I'm letting them handle the rest of it. Um, so yeah, with John, he he's on this different level that I don't think I'll ever understand, but he is able to hone that and speak to all these different people and get on their level and then go back to his level. And then there's Jared Kovac, we heard you like books. It's a completely different conversation, but every single time I meet him, it's in LA. We go to this place called um, House of Pies. It's his favorite place. I think he goes every every day of the week. Um, and we last time I met him at, I think it was 1 p.m. and I left at 9 p.m. And we just sit there and talk about, um, we, there's no basis of conversation we just meet we hug and then he's like hey how do you like the weather and i'll say it's great it's sunny and then just boom nine hours later we're still talking and one of us has to go to another meeting because it's late um but it, it just it's this organic discussion where we will say something and you talk to a regular person they have no idea what you're talking about but then he or she will say yeah i know exactly what you're talking about how about this do you know about this and then it just it just progresses from there and then the other person that i met was um tyler Tyler Crummering, who runs Plays Inverse, he published my play, and he is on a completely different planet when it comes to plays, because that, that, that's what he does. I can't pronounce this word. He's a dramaturge, it's, so it's drama, and then I think it's T-U-R-G-E, and what he does is he researches the accuracy of how people speak. So if they're doing a play that's set in or and they're using certain accents, he researches that and makes sure that every single character is pronouncing the P correctly or the I correctly. And also, if something is presented a certain way visually, that, that's exactly how it would have been done back then, whether it's how they did plays back then or how people actually lived. So that's his life. 
Um, so in talking to him, when he was taking care of, um, you know, researching for my play and also publishing it, I just saw this passion and this involvement that I've never seen from anyone when it comes to a certain thing that you're able to say in words. Usually if someone is really passionate about something or really involved, you can see it, but you just don't understand it. He was able to explain to me what he does and also how he was able to apply it to my work in a way that I understood it that went beyond what I expected from him. Um, and I think he was, he was more invested in what I wrote than I even was at, at a certain point. So I just literally just let him do the rest. Um, and the fourth person is um, uh, Anderson Prunty. I think I'm pronouncing his last name right, P-R-U-N-T-Y. I've never actually met him or talked on the phone to him, but he published my first two books, Mastodon Farm and Arafat Mountain. The reason I trusted him is because he was actually affiliated to the Bizarro scene. He's one of the first writers. Um, I think since, since um, he hasn't left the scene, but he started his own press called Atlatl Press. And I think he's written about 30 books since then. And I admire a person who can write that many books and have still keep their voice in all those books. And he goes from any genre and he still knocks it out of the park. He goes from horror to thrillers to sorrow to absurd literature to action. And he, he's done everything and it's all amazing. I've read almost every single thing he's ever released. And um, I mean, you can tell that he's he's also on a different wavelength because he doesn't interact with people very much he just you know sort of writes he doesn't talk about writing and then all of a sudden something just comes out out of nowhere um, he just releases a book and then it's usually 200 or 300 pages long and i read it and i'm just i'm, I'm just it's amazing he he has a way of just and he creates these real stories of these characters it's more like a i could totally see every single book he's ever written become a movie um they're not weird just for the sake of being weird it's this person who can actually write very good stories um, but then he just has a way of doing his stories um, but yeah that was just a quick run through of all the people that I've published with and why um, I mean it's very important who I publish with which is how it should be for anybody um, but I, I it, who I publish with what the cover looks like what the cover is made of those are my three things usually um, and up to this point I think that I've hit all of them I, mean, I guess we'll still see with um, Lonely Men Club because that hasn't happened yet um, but it's just this sequence of, of things that I need to check off the list when I'm working with somebody else. Um, and all, three, all four of these people that I worked with so far have been able to do that. And I, I would recommend anyone who wants to work in literature and has something that they would like to release, and they should familiarize themselves with these presses. Um, maybe you can put links later, but I, all four of these people I would vouch for forever. It seems like a lot of the oh heck how do i want to say it it see it seems like obsession has to be at the root of of these people like obsession with with one sort of thing like your the your your playwright uh publisher like that to me like the obsessiveness to go and figure out exactly how certain consonants need to be pronounced is is uh speaks to me as as a display of obsession and i'm wondering do you have sort of that obsessive nature about you about anything yeah um i mean I, you, you you picked up right on it I, yeah every single one of um, them that i talked about they, there is something obsessive about them which is what makes it great 
Uh, it might seem weird to other people, but I think that's what makes it interesting for myself. Um, yeah, it, there's this element of control that I need to have on, in my work, um, and I, I do this. In, I did this in all of them except for Stanley Kubrick, and I think it shows up in Lonely Men Club. But it's these lists. I have to make a list, and when I make a list of something, it's very, very long. So. The play, um, The Mystery of the Seventeenth Pilot Fish, opens with a scene where a man walks into a house, and the house is painted blue, so it looks like the ocean, but it's not a real ocean. But then there's a bunch of fish on the floor, and those fish are actually all real fish. And I spend, I think, two or two and a half pages just listing all the fish there on the floor. Um, and it's a very, very long list. And my obsession with that comes from the research of looking at... I didn't know anything about fish before I wrote that play, so I, I spent two months just watching videos on fish, finding out why certain fish are called what they're called, um, why they do what they do, um, what's interesting about each, each fish. So um, if you ever do read the play, believe it or not, each fish that's on that floor is there for a reason. And there's also a number associated to each fish, and there's a reason for that number as well. So that's where my obsession comes in, because it's things, just like in the video games that I'm making, where a minor character will say as many things as an important character, but nobody will care or know about that. I still have to do it for myself because I want to know that if somebody ever were to look into that, they would see the, 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 the work that I put into that. So it's this idea that, you know, it only takes one time to fail. So you got to make sure that you cover all your bases, no matter what. Um, and for me, my obsession just can come from anything. Um, I mean, a good example is like this. You know, I go through phases where, uh, two years ago, I bought this keyboard, a Profit 08 that I've wanted for years. I finally bought it, and then I just spent three months, literally every single night, I would be up from 8 p.m. to maybe 3 a.m. just recording just songs. Um, and I wouldn't use a computer. I refused to use a computer, so I bought this four-track, and that's I would just record in one take. And to this day, I still I think I have like maybe 70 songs that I just haven't done anything with, but I needed to do it because I had to justify the purchase of this item that was very expensive that I still have. I did that, and then after four months, I didn't I didn't walk away because I got bored. It's because I found something else that I, I was obsessed with. Um, so then now this video game thing started about a month ago, and um, I just that's all I do. So when I come back. Now I focus on, okay, now I want to do this thing, or I want to add this thing to the game, or I want to do this thing. And who knows how long that's going to last. I'm guessing that's just going to last a couple more weeks or maybe a month or two, and then I'll go do something else. Um, but I would like to find one thing that I just do. That's, that's it. I don't want to do anything else. Because I also, I'll write film reviews for, for a while, and then I won't do them again. So I think I wrote nine or ten film, really in-depth film reviews in March. Now I don't do it anymore because I don't have time. Um, and then for the whole month of February, I was recording myself playing guitar or bass. Um, and I'd record video, and I would just post a video of it on Facebook, just one a day or one a week just for the whole month. And I don't do that anymore. Um, I, I, maybe it's things that I find to pass the time. Um, I think that no matter what I do, I will always come back to writing in some sense. And right now my schedule has been every two years I release something. Since 2012, I've been doing that. It hasn't felt burdensome, or it hasn't hindered me in any way. But I, I think, I mean, I think it's time to do do it differently. Um, I don't know how I'm going to do that, but I think the, the Lonely Men Club is a, is a is a good beginning for this new change because I'm going to be doing something completely different. Because 
I have had people that have read my other work that have been waiting for the next book. I mean, and I make it sound like there's a lot of people. It's, it's maybe 20 people that have asked me over the couple last couple of months since they found out about Lonely Men Club, hey, what is this? When is it coming out? I'm very interested. And they're going to be very surprised, which I'm very excited to hear what they think about that. Because these are the same people who usually write reviews. So I know I'm going to know what they, what they think. Um, but at the same time, it's also going to be very alien new people and i'm also excited to see what that does um but and also just people who are curious in general they're like oh this i've never i didn't know something like this was even being done these days i, I just want to hear from those people as well um and then i think whatever happens after Man club i'm gonna sit down and just you know take it all in and decide what i'm going to do next i mean there, there is there are other things that we can talk about later that i've sort of started but yeah the focus right now is just Literally, I took a 180, did something completely different, it's done, um, and now I just want to sort of see what reception is going to be, because, yeah, that was, going back to your question about obsessive, I mean, that was the epitome of all that, because everything that's in there, <clears throat> I said I had 500 different sentences that I came up with, and those didn't happen overnight, I spent, I spent, um, I mean, I had five days to do it, so I spent maybe a day and a half. That's all I did. Where I could have been doing more useful things to <clears throat> make the story progress or write other things, but I just spent a day and a half just writing these different sentences, and each one had to be very specific about what it was doing. For example, one of them is um, Zodiac looks at the sun, and the sun is a certain color, but the color is a normal color, like purple, green, or red. But then before that, there's a word that's associated with that color, so like destroyed, or, or I can't even think of the words right now. There's like 90 different words I use. It's destroyed or impossible, or, or, or um, diseased purple. Um, and this I got from E.E. E. Cummings um, because he would invent these words just by taking two words that don't mean anything and putting them together, and one would be italicized and the other wouldn't, so that you you could find the separation. Um, and this is more like a poetic um, gesture. And I don't really understand poetry as much or as well as I'd like to, but that fascinated me. So I literally bought all the books I could find on E. Cummings, and I would read all the poetry he's ever written. And he's an interesting person. Um, and what fascinated me the most was that someone back then was doing something like that, because I could totally see someone now, a contemporary um, poet, writing something like that, because it makes sense. I mean, you're informed by Tumblr or Twitter or whatever, you know, all these short bursts of just inventing whatever you want. But back then, someone who was, you know, you were being taught how to write liter um, literature or poetry in a conventional sense, but you were, he was going against that. And just even just the way it looked on paper, he was fascinated with um, writing, making, making poetry look like poetry as opposed to just having it go in sequence. So that, I was very fortunate to find out about him right before Lonely Man Club. So anyone who's familiar, and I do cite him as an influence in there too, anyone who's familiar with him will see a lot of that in the in Lonely Men Club, um, because that really goes hand in hand with that, um, <clears throat> the idea of creating these sentences that randomize and become different things. That's where I, 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 I just got into this zone of, this is what I want. And there's another, there's another, another sentence where Zodiac drinks tea. So I have like a hundred different tea that he's drinking, he, she, or it. Um, and then there's also um, different lakes that Zodiac goes to and the methods of transportation that Zodiac takes to go to these lakes. And then Zodiac goes to <clears throat> the library to check out either a VHS, a Laserdisc, a, a, a Betamax, or a 
a tape of a certain film and there's there's a list of like 150 films and then there's different um music that zodiac listens to and there's different concerts that zodiac goes to so it's all these mundane activities that a normal person if they were to do them you would think i don't really care but if you keep in mind who the zodiac is and the way i'm just presenting the zodiac in this light that nobody would ever think of i think that's what makes it and that's where the obsession came in because I wanted this to stand apart, strip away the, the the method of how I created the story, strip away the idea behind the castle freak. And if you were to take all that away, would the story still be interesting? And that was the question I was trying to ask, and I think I answered it. Yeah, that's a good question to ask too, because that keeps the work from becoming a gimmick that people rave about when it comes out because of the shock value or something. Right. And, and then it's a work that can live on its own long after people have forgotten how it was conceived. Correct. Yeah. And that was the biggest thing I talked to when I was talking to John about that. Um, that was one of my issues. Hey, I, <clears throat> I don't want this to be a one trick pony type thing. I want this to move beyond all, all these, these fears that I have. And he had read, he, he actually hasn't read the work all the way through. He, he's seen parts of it, but he's done that on purpose. He wants to experience it for the first time as a book as well that's why he's had other people read it um and they were the ones who mentioned if there's any issues with it um but yeah the the um as i was thinking about writing it there's um there's one writer in particular that i kept going back to who i mentioned in the essay that i wrote his name is edouard he's a french writer he wrote a series of books one of them is called auto portrait um, are you familiar with him i'm not no he wrote this book where Literally, I think it's 110 pages of him just literally saying everything that comes to mind where he says, um, I've never I've never swam in this lake. And he says, I've never eaten this type of sandwich. I've never watched this type of movie. I have only kissed 14 people in my life. I have never gone to the store to buy candy. So it's these really weird things that anyone could do. But it's how you can tell that he wrote it and it was a longer piece of work. But he kept his the best parts of it. And once you read it, you can literally read it all in one afternoon. It's that good. Um, he also wrote this other book called Suicide, which unfortunately he wrote right actually, right before he actually killed himself. Um, but it's the story of him and his friend standing outside about to go play tennis. And his friend says, hey, just hold on. I have to go grab something and forgot it in the house. And it's a true story. His friend went back in the house and shot himself. Um, so then he spends the rest of that book writing from the second person explaining what their life could have killed him if his friend had not killed himself um and it just it's this, this atmosphere that 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 he creates with this story that you don't get anywhere else um then he has this other one called works where he has all these ideas for books or um projects that he wanted to start that he never started but the ideas themselves are enough to like create a whole book where he has these random things where he says four people are standing in a room but one of them is not something um how do these other three people find this out and it's literally just these prompts um and he, the whole book is just full of these prompts um another person that really influenced lonely man club is david markson who wrote this is not a novel the last novel um uh, where these literally all these books are just a bunch of um, sayings or facts from from history um where he'll say Caesar never actually had a Caesar salad or something strange like that. But the, the, 
what fa- what was fascinating about those books is people said he hasn't he hasn't written any of these. All he's doing is going through a encyclopedia or um, something and finding all these facts and then just writing them down and then putting them in a book. <clears throat> and he said, yeah, that's what he does. He would write all these things you know, on note cards and he put them in a shoebox and then he would just like throw them on the floor and just pick the ones that he found most interesting and then he would write a sequence of those to make a book out of them. Um, <clears throat> and there, there's there's seven or, or eight other authors who were doing very weird things um, and I, I, I cite them all in the essay. But I was trying to find this sort of middle ground with all, like I, w- I wanted to have 10 authors that I could not necessarily emulate but say that these are the ones who sort of gave me a direction or a sense of direction into what I wanted to do with Lonely Men Club and I hope that people who are familiar with at least one of these authors can pick up on that um, if not I guess they'll think that I came up with all that but I mean I, there, there is a certain quality that comes from combining all that that I didn't see in any, any of the other works but I mean, just like anything else, when you're making something, you take your favorite of anything and you just try to do something better with it or you try to make it your own thing. Do you, do you find that numbers are important to you in your creative process? It's, it seems like, just from listening to you talk now, uh, finding the 10 writers and or doing a thing for just a month, do you sort of partition things in your mind like that purposefully? And is that part of the no, no, like I... control that, that you've referenced as well? I mean, it's, it's interesting that you bring that up because I, I have talked about numbers a lot. No, I think that the only reason I do that is because if I do not stop myself with a number, if I don't say, all right, by end of April, if nothing comes from this video game phase, I will stop. If I don't do that, I will go forever. Okay. Um, so it's a way to, yeah, it's a way to limit myself um because i could yeah i could just focus on something forever even if nothing comes from it um i i, I think also this i told you earlier that every two years i have to release something i think that stems from my parents because growing up they always their biggest thing is when you do if you're doing something you have to have something to show for it you can't just do things for no reason so I got in this habit of when I have when I do something like when I would do homework, I would have to show them, hey, I finished my homework, and then the proof of finishing my homework, they would let me go do what I want. I could go play a computer game. I, I could. It was never. You can't just. There was no verbal agreement. I could never say I did it. They would always say you have to show me what you said you did. Um, so I think that that became ingrained in me. So that's why when I say something, I don't I don't announce a lot of things to the general public, such as Twitter unless I know it's going to happen. So usually if, I, if I'm done with something and I'm editing it or I'm revising it, it's pretty much done. That's when I announce it because I guess a pet peeve of mine, again, because of my parents, is if someone says they're going to do something and it's three years later and you ask them and they still say, oh, I'm you know, still working on it, I'm not done, I just get annoyed by that because and what I'm used to is you say something and then you do it shortly after. Um, and if they don't, it just, it just confuses me, but also... Um, angers me in a, in a, in a not angry way. Um, so yeah, the, the, the sequence of limitations definitely comes from my parents. And I just stuck with that because I guess I've seen results from that. Um, and it's, it definitely has limited me in certain ways, but also shaped me a lot in how I do things. Um, and I did not realize that until right now. (laughs) Well, there we go. Uh, that would be $150 for the therapy. Uh, (laughs) 
I think that's really interesting. Do you think you could do something episodic then? You mean for games or books or for anything? any anything creatively? That's that's a good question. Um, if I did that, I would have to think about it differently um, because I would either approach it one of two ways. I'd have to know what I'm going to be doing for the first three episodes, no matter what. Maybe with a little deviation, but I would have to know that. Or literally, I would just go into it and just do the first one and go off whatever and do the second and third one. It would be interesting, um, but for me, the only thing that would make it happen is if there was a demand for it. I, I would not go into a project. Let's let's take writing, for instance. I would not go into a project, write a first book, submit it to a publisher and say, hey, by the way, this is you know, book one of five. Uh, who knows what's going to happen? I mean, what if I die two weeks from now? I mean, I don't want to be, I don't want to do that kind of stuff. Um, but if somebody approaches me and like how I told you, those publishers, all four of them, when I spoke to them, they had, they had this something about them convinced to do what I did. If somebody of that caliber can approach me and explain to me why they think I should do something episodic, absolutely. I'm not against that. Um, but for myself, it would take a lot of self-convincing to even think about doing that. Okay. That's that's a good answer. The I guess the reason I ask is because one of my personal obsessions uh lately has been um researching all of these different um like ARG type YouTube series that happened right around the time that YouTube was new and the idea that Take it. Take for example, um, Everyman Hybrid. This that series. How it like still is kind of happening eight years after its inception, and I guess ARGs are a whole different monster too. Uh, but it, what, what is what is ARG? Okay, actually? alternate reality games. Um, uh, oh, okay. So let's see for for a good example good easy example i guess i guess we'll take we'll take every man hybrid it, it's sort of it, it's part of like the, the slender man or it, or it uses the slender man lore and it was a youtube series and oh there's weird things in the background of the of these youtube videos and so people will comment on them and and it sort of expanded out from there and it's like oh the slender man is actually haunting them and twitter accounts and tumblr accounts would sort of branch off and and treasure hunts would happen people would be sent coordinates and they would actually go to the coordinates and then they would dig up a box and the box would have things in it oh, wow and so they would post those things on twitter and all of the the sort of ragtag community would say okay well that code that that jumble of letters is this type of cipher and i've decrypted it so it's this saying and so on and so forth and so is this real or who, who was putting these boxes there well so that's the thing is is that it's just like with every man hybrid it's three or four guys who just like decided to do this and the thing that is so fascinating about it is as i watch these um like every man hybrid explained youtube videos is it seems like they had everything planned out from the start which is crazy to me because it's eight years old at this point right right um 
And so I guess my episodic question was sort of stemmed from from that idea. Like, could you do something open ended, and and not let it impede you expressing yourself other artistic ways? Uh, now that you bring it, now that you you know explain it that way, I guess my fear would be to be stuck in something that I no longer enjoy doing. Even if so, even if it became popular, like these guys the everything hybrid or every man hybrid um and it was eight years later and i got sick of it two years in but i had i felt like i had to do it for the audience that would be my i would hate to do that and i would not i wouldn't have the guts to tell everyone i hate this i can't do it um i would just keep doing it but i, I would not like it so yeah, it'd be a fear of being stuck in something you don't like but at the same time on the flip side um my other fear would be to keep trying to do this thing in the back of my mind thinking oh it, it'll pick up it'll pick up just keep going keep going you know it's four years in five years in and all you're getting are these five people who are just you know it's, you only have five people who are interested you get like these maybe one or two stragglers but then they just leave um and i'm thinking more of the youtube type of thing you're talking about i mean for the writing you could almost say that that's what it's it, it's at for me at this point it's not i mean there's no huge fan base i mean there's a steady one there um which kind of is what what keeps me going but the the nice thing is I can kind of do something different each time. Um, but I don't know. Now that you bring that up, maybe I'm going to write that down in you know, two years from now. I'm going to try to approach. I mean, the closest thing to that is, so the I mentioned that there's these other projects I'm working on. There's this um, graphic novel that I, I've already written all of it. Um, this was recent, and it's done. And I have this artist working with me. His name is Tor Brandt, T-O-R space B-R-A-N-D-T. And um, I got in a phase where I was reading a lot of graphic novels. Um, I've always liked reading them more when I was a kid. But now that there's a lot that you can actually read as an adult, it's geared towards adults. Um, I appreciate that. So I spent, I, there's like a six-month phase where I was reading different graphic novels and I would make notes on why I liked the way a certain one looked and why this one affected me, blah, blah, blah. So I made this list of like, again, here we go with numbers. A list of like, I think it was six things that I liked that I wanted. Like if I were to do something, this is what I wanted in it. But I don't, it's not that I don't trust my own artistic skill. I could draw something, I guess, but it would take me longer since I don't do it on a regular basis. But I wanted to find somebody else that I really enjoyed their style for more than one reason at least, you know, three or four of those six reasons I had. So I spent a long time looking. And there was this guy, Tor Brandt, whose stuff I for three years ago that I had kept as a bookmark. And one day I just randomly saw his stuff again. And he had done so much more since the last time I had looked at his website. And um, his style had improved. And it was exactly what I was looking for. So I just contacted him and said, hey, look, I have this story that I think would really go well with your style. Would you be interested? And I didn't think he would respond. Because um, he had gotten to a point where I think he was getting the recognition he's looking for so he was busy with all these projects but he said yeah just send me you know your script or whatever and he really liked it he said there was a quality to it like a, like the way i was writing it felt like um there was a detachment as if there was a floating narrator that was telling the story even though characters was talking but it's the way they talk that was interesting so anyway um we're talking about obsess obsession um we started this i think a year and a half ago and we have gone through seven visual, um, visual changes as far as the work goes. We, we did a whole layout. It's going to be about 200 pages long where he drew every single page as sketches. 
and we agreed on how it was going to look. And then he started doing the first three chapters, but then he would change his mind and say, no, instead of doing this with pencil, I'm going to do it with, with a graphic tablet. And then he would do that. He's like, no, it's too clean. I'm going to do a mixture of both. And he would start all over. And then he would stop that and say, no, I'd rather do this color palette. But instead of just, you know, doing it digitally, he would start all over again. And then he'd say, no, I want to use crayons for this. Or no, I want to use colored pencils. Oh, these colored pencils, that green, that shade of green is not that good. I'll switch to a different one. So he'd buy a whole new set of colors. Um, so most recently, he redid everything again. Um, I mean, I don't mind, but he, he apologized every time. He's like, yeah, I'm really particular about how I want things to look. I'm like, no, I, I completely get it. I'm the same way, just not to that extent. Because with, the, with writing, you can just press delete and rewrite that sentence. But with drawing, there's so much more involved. But... Um, Right now, it's going to be called Life Itself. It's going to be spelled L-I-E-F, and then itself is going to be spelled I-T-S-L-E-F. Um, and literally, all it is is it's these two guys called Akbar and Kud. Kud is spelled Q-U-D. They're life coaches. They travel the world telling people how they should live their lives, but then you discover, as the story progresses, that they don't really have a handle on their own lives. One of them goes missing. Um, the story cuts. There's an 18-month period where it cuts after the person goes missing, there's even a sequence in the book that says, please take you know, two weeks off before you read the next sequence. Wow. And then when the sequence, yeah, once the, once the sequence picks up, the character shows up again, but there's no explanation of what happened or where he went or why he left. Um, and they just carry on as if nothing happened. But then as the story reaches the end, you realize, oh, um, I, I think I know why, 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 where he went and what happened and how they found him again. Um, and then I did this thing that I've always wanted to do with my writing that I don't think I was able to do unless it was a visual novel, which is, the, which is going to happen here. Um, but this doesn't ruin anything. At the very end, I mean, actually the last couple, the last section, um, every single character that's appeared in the story, and we've done a list, I think there's about 95 characters, they all come back at the very end. And it's, there's a reason they all come back, and every single one of them has their own panel and this is argue, arguably going to take the longest time. Um, but if it goes the way we planned it, I think it's going to be very, um, it's going to be something that, that people can actually talk about because there's a reason we do it the way we do it or we, we choose, chose to do it. And if, like I said, if it goes the way planned, I, I'm really excited to see this visually and I want to know what people think about it. Um, but there's no rush on this. We don't have a deadline which may be part of the problem. It's more of a passion thing, but he's really passionate about this as much as I am. Um, and it's something I haven't talked about a lot about because I wanted to show some images about it, but he doesn't want to because we keep and He does not want to show anything until we have half of it done, which I understand completely. Yeah, for sure. I keep, I keep just getting caught up... Um, listening to you talk and i i have a copy of camley stubrick just in front of me just in case i wanted to reference it uh and i probably won't yeah. but um well i talk too much no go you, ahead and stop me no i would um i i'd like listening to people talk about writing which is why this show exists because some something about reading people talking about writing or people writing about writing really just like rubs me in a strange way it doesn't upset mm -hmm. me or anything. It just, I guess it feels too tedious to read. Um, like any sort of tangential anything in, in an essay about writing, I just want to skip. Uh, 
and I know Stephen <laughs> King has his sort of his his big popular on writing book, and I don't know if I'll ever read it because I just remember somebody talking about it and saying that his quote unquote rules for writing is that at least for himself is he reads four to six hours a day and make sure that he writes 2000 words a day and he won't go to bed unless those two things have been completed. And like, that's really all I need from Stephen King about writing. Yeah. Uh, but, but if I were to listen to him talk and his voice is super abrasive, so maybe it would be different, but I could probably <laughs> just put on a lecture of his on YouTube and play some tower defense gamers or something and, and just let it go and not be bothered at all. Yeah, no, I, I see what you're saying. Um, and that totally makes sense. Um, because, I mean, I don't, I don't know how to even put it in words, but yeah, reading about writing is very different from hearing someone. It, it goes back to what I was saying. Um, you know, uh, most, of the, most of the talk I do about writing, whether it's my own or anybody else's, is done on, online or on the computer or in writing. But then when you actually say it out loud or you're talking to somebody else especially someone who gets it there's it's a whole different um way of interacting and um in a, in a weird way i think that uh that lack of interacting verbally or, or audibly on a regular basis i think is what makes it so interesting i mean imagine if you had your show every single day i think it would get maybe some people would enjoy that but i think it's the idea of having it you know having a break between each of those, that, that, that's, it gives some people something to look forward to, if that makes sense, you know? I, I, I do think so. There, there's a guy at work who, uh, at one of my jobs, who's a writer, and every time I go to, I walk by his desk to talk to him, it always turns into at least a 45-minute discussion because yeah. he comes from such a different background that I do, and so we'll just throw names at each other of writers or critics or whoever and there's like the venn diagram is two circles very far apart <laughs> and, and and it's great because it's like a, it's constantly i'm constantly learning and writing names down in my phone and because of that there are days where i see him at his desk and i will i will very purposefully not make eye contact with him and and try to avoid talking to him because i know that like I really enjoy talking to him once a week or once every other week about this and taking 45 minutes to an hour and a half out of my day to talk to him about it. Um, yeah, no, yeah. I mean, there's lots to say for that. I and mean, it goes for anything um, other than writing. I think that uh, some more interesting conversations I've had in life are with people who are completely different and have completely different interests, but we're both willing to listen to that's the biggest part um and there's some people who are completely different who refuse to listen um or have a conversation and that's a whole different interaction but yeah for the people that are willing to write down the names and actually look up what you're talking about um and then you do i mean there's there's a valuable conversation to have there and that's essentially what i always want to have um so yeah i mean this interaction you have with this guy sounds great but at the same time i do understand that he um not wanting to do it every single day, just like I mentioned about your your show. You you have to have this distance. You have to have this break, this gap, um, or else it no longer um, is. It's no longer a pleasant thing. I agree. However, 
the Patreon that is going that is is now live does have a ten thousand dollar a month level where I will do the show every day. And for ten thousand dollars a month, I'll oh, tell you, you what, man, I'll do the show every day and I'll smile every day. I'll wake up a very happy man every morning. I like that goal, ten thousand dollars, <laughs> because it's absolutely unreachable. Re- absolutely unreachable. That's like that's like red letter media Patreon money. That's just you know. I do not have a 90-minute Phantom Menace movie review quality work inside of me, <laughs> at, le- at least not <laughs> at least not with uh, with this show. Well, I mean, this is the, it's the early stages. You never know what's going to happen in six months. Yeah, that's true. That is true. I, I think what I was trying Keep to get at... Keep your fingers crossed. Yeah, well, definitely. Uh, I think one of the things I wanted to get at, and I was talking to my wife about it because... I think the last half of Canley Stubrick I read out loud to her as she was falling asleep. Uh, that's something that she likes me to do every once in a while. And I was trying to talk about... I, f- I find the work to be really special, and I'm not just uh, tooting your horn here. I, I, there's something about it. There's an atmosphere to it that, that feels unlike anything I have felt before but at the same time it felt very familiar and with you saying at the beginning of our our talk that it's about love i think i think that's part of it like it's a love that i've never actually felt before but it's still it's still very similar and that's not to say i have any sort of deficiencies when it comes to to you know being romantic with people but right there it's just I don't know. Maybe it has to do with the line breaks. Like it, it kind of looks like poetry. Maybe it has to do with the the black pages dividing up sections, or the length of it, or maybe the 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 cover art. But I don't know. Like as soon as I finished it, I wanted to read it again, and that has not been the case with a book since I was a very small child and all I read were like Harry Potter and Redwall novels. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Um, I mean, honestly, whenever people ask me, what, why did you write Stanley Kubrick? What was the drive? Um, I mean, there's two reasons. The personal reason is I had just gotten out of a, of a long relationship and um, I had not done anything creative at all during that relationship. So, and I, it, it, I don't, I don't want to say how it was. This is not my way of feeling. Um, that's not it at all. It was someone to tie it in with that part. Someone once asked me, um, you know, you write all these books, but why don't you write something that's you know commercial, something that people might actually want to read? And I said, well, what do you mean? What, what's something people might want to read? They said, why don't you do something like Nicholas Sparks, write a book about love? And I said, you know what? All right, just because. Nicholas Sparks can do it. I can do it too. Absolutely. Um, so nice, right? So then I started doing that. But I said, you know what? How can I make this my own? So then I started thinking about like, what does it mean to be in love? What does it mean when someone says that? Um, and I, I explore a lot. I try to explore a lot of that in Kimmy Stewart. Like when someone says, "I love you," like what are they actually thinking, and what does it mean to them? Because you say something enough times, and it it loses its meaning, which is what Lonely Men Club is all about. But um, you, you, you meet these two characters in Canley Stubrick, and you don't know how long they've been together. Um, you can sort of get a feel of it by the way they talk to each other. Um, but there's also this 
this odd displacement because of their friends they have and the names their friends have. And you wonder who, like, what kind of people are these people? And I mean, I, for people who haven't read the book yet, I don't think I'm ruining anything. I sort of already say this on the back, but um, she go, the girl goes missing. So the guy feels that it's his job to go find her. It's more that he feels it's his job less because he loves her, but more that, oh, we are in a relationship. She is missing. She is my other. I must go find her. And there's just this, this, this clinical quality to how he like looks for her. You know, he, he see he finds these clues and where to go look for her, and you don't really get much of what he's thinking on the inside. He just follows it. It's like, all right, you go to point A. Oh, she's not here. She's at point B. He goes, okay, I guess I need to rent a car. So he rents a car. Oh, she's not at point B. She's at point C. And all these notes have very strange things on them. A normal person would think, oh, this is very weird. What's going on? Who is this person writing these notes? But he's more like, oh, it's whatever. You know, I guess this is what it's like looking for someone I love, because he doesn't necessarily know what that means either. Now, this is an abstract way of representing real life things. I mean, I think this, I, a lot of my own personal feelings I had after the relationship made me wonder, you know, what did it mean when that happened? Or did this mean nothing? Or, you know, when you tell someone, I love you, and then it ends two years later, and then they say it to somebody else, does that have less meaning because they said it to me first? All these, you know, deep things that most people want answers to, I just thought, let's, I'll, I'll write about it and present it in the way I usually present things. And that's why I think there's a, there's something that will resonate with at least with everyone at least at least one part or two parts. They'll be like, oh, I, I think I know what that means. But I don't like to put things bluntly because I do want to hear what people got from what they put. But yeah, a lot of it or all of it really is from personal things. And um, I spent a long time trying to have every single I, I I I had written down all the things that I wanted answered by the end of the book for myself, which I did answer. But then I wanted them to not just before me. So I, I wrote them a different way so that they could be more ambiguous in a non-ambiguous way. Um, and then also the visuals, the way it looks, why it looks like poetry. Um, I had an answer for this a while ago when I first wrote it, which I don't remember anymore, but it had something to do with feeling just, you know, feeling like I'm taking a, a, a deep breath and I needed to leave those spaces in between the words to show that I was taking a step back and analyzing things because everything I've written up to that point, the Mastodon Farm is written traditionally where it's paragraphs. Um, Arafat Mountain is just one giant paragraph on each page. So everything was claustrophobic. Here it's like, okay, let's put some air between all of this. Let's distance ourselves. So literally I was putting myself in the work by showing that I was taking a step back and I wanted every single word in Kenley Spielberg, all my work, but mostly Kenley Spielberg, um, is important. There is a reason why each word is there. Um, it could have been another word, but I put that word there for a reason. Um, and also just the way I write him is always capitalized. Any man, especially the main character, is always capitalized. The word, lowercase. There's a reason for that as well. Um, but there's just a lot of thought that went into it. Um, and I could talk about every single page for an hour, um, but I don't think there's any need to do that because I don't want the reader or readers to know what I was trying to say and have that um, affect their understanding. I always want people to go into this blind with no expectation or maybe a little expectation based off of the back, but then I always want to hear what they Like you said, the black pages, the spaces, the way it looks like poetry. Um, I know why I did all that, but I also am always interested in why, what other people think of why I did that. And then if they want to know why I did it, I will tell them. Yeah. 
So you're not like David Lynch in that you're just like, ah, too bad. <laughs> I want to be that way, but um, if I really don't have an answer, I do say I don't have an answer. But no, for Canley Stewart, it was my most personal work. Um, I it, it was one of the things where after Arafat Mountain, I said, I'm not writing anymore. I'm done. This is it. This is I can't do it anymore. But then the the tra- traumatic thing happened in my life, and out of nowhere, this book just came out. And I was like, wow. Um, and it just it kind of just wrote itself in a weird way, and. I would look at it and go, wow, I can't believe that, you know, I, I had an idea, but then, like, there are certain pages where it's just four or five or six words on there, and they're all spread out in a certain way, um, and that's not stuff I do. I don't do, the, and I think that's when the visual started happening, because you'll see a lot more of that in Lonely Men Club, but, um, yeah, before that, I would just stick to traditional, you know, the way, uh, the way fiction looks on paper. Sure. So is is all of the strange formatting in Lonely Men Club? That's not a product of the. Uh, that's not a product of using Twine. That's intentional on your part. That's intentional. Yeah, Twine. It would be able to do that, but if I had to set that up for Twine, where I could literally just copy paste, it would have taken me an extra day to do that. The only aspect of Twine that I used was the sentence, uh, the the changing of the sentences. So what I would do is I would have 50 sentences on a page and I would just plug them into Twine. And as soon as I loaded Twine, it would would randomly generate those sentences from the get-go because I already had it set up that way. And then I would take those sentences and put them on the page and keep going. Um, And then with the visuals, what I would do is I would, I would take it, I would do it for an hour straight. And then however long I, however far I got, I would stop. I would read that whole section or at least skim through it. And then I would start getting these images or these pictures in my head based on what was going on. And then I would make them look a certain way. So, I mean, for instance, um, for Lonely Men Club, uh, let me see here. I have it pulled up. Yeah, because if I'm looking at it, there's, there's a part where it looks like the, page, like the words are jumping, are like falling off the side of the page. Um, there's a reason for that, because when I was reading a certain part, there's something that, that, that um, mentions that. So I did that. There's other parts where um, there's a there's a bunch of white gaps between the words. You can tell that there's something white that's like cutting off half of that C, and you can't really read it. There's a I mean there's a reason for all that as well. So there's a lot of visual stuff, but all of it is not random either. I would say that that's the least random part of the book, the visual parts for each section. Cool. I'm glad that I get to go into reading the book knowing that now. Because, okay. <laughs> because it, it, in my mind, I don't know why. Um, for some reason, I just assumed you were doing some sort of algorithmic something, some sort of procedural mm-hmm. generation, uh, which which I guess is true to a very small extent, maybe. But for some reason, I just maybe it's because I'm really into or. For some for some time, I was very into the idea behind the game No Man's Sky. Uh, yeah. Uh, and so, for some reason, to me, anything that is machine aided was procedural generation to me. Probably because I know nothing about coding or anything remotely like that. So, I just sort of assumed that the program you were using to assist your writing was placing the words as well as helping you come up with them yeah um 
there are programs that can do that. Um, I would say that when it comes to programming, I am probably the middle of the beginning levels. Um, I, I know more than someone who knows nothing, of course, but I don't know as, like if I actually talked to a real programmer, they would say, what are you talking about? Um, <laughs> so I, I did spend, I looked at different programs. I was looking at Python, I was looking at JavaScript, and they were they th those programs just did way too much, and I don't like that freedom because I know I would have just sat there and try to do everything. So I needed something that we I wanted something that uh, I like the idea of taking something that's not supposed to do what I'm making it do. No one would ever use Twine for this programming aspect, and you're not alone when you thought that it was more algorithmic because I've had I've actually had certain I've had two programmers on Twitter like send private messages saying, "Could you tell me more about how you did what you did?" Because I'm very interested in it. And in the back of my mind, I was thinking, you're not going to find it as interesting as you think it is because you probably think I did way more than, than, I, than it seems. And I think writers that know nothing about um, programming are going to appreciate the truth more than actual programmers because right now I have both camps. I have all these programmers who follow me going, my goodness, someone actually did something with this and they're actually going to make a book that might make sense and it's all programming. And then you have all the writers yourself who don't know anything about it but they say mm, i guess this might be interesting because it seems like he knew what he was doing and he made the computer do what he wanted to do well it's neither of those it's just it was it's i made the computer do what i wanted to do for what it was writing but then for the visuals i had to have some sort of control so i still took what it wrote but then i made it look a certain way i guess i sh i could send you like three or four pages just to show you what i mean as far as the visuals go sure because uh, then it might make more but yeah, there, there is a reason for all the visuals. Um, they may not be apparent, um, and they're, they're not always directly linked to the previous or next page, but they're there for a reason. And again, I mean, I could have done way more, but my, because I'm stupid like that, I spent 20% of my energy making sure that the visuals were there for a reason where they were. And I mean, some people might call that wasted energy, but at least I know that I did it because I wanted to do it that way. Yeah, well... From what I remember about the, the the Castle Freak prompt, there was a time limit, right? Yeah, you have to do it all in five days. Okay, yeah. So. Which sounds like a lot, um, but yeah, once you, if you, I mean, if we were computers and you could literally say, all right, for, for 60 minutes you have to do this, and then you go to the next, well, things happen. I had to go to the bathroom, someone would come at the door, the phone would ring, um, I'd want to watch a YouTube video for a second. Um, so, so yeah, I would say then you have to sleep. So five days is more like three days or two and a half days if you really boil it down. Um, interestingly enough, I also recorded, I think, 10 songs during that time because I was just losing my mind at a certain point. And I said, I can't do this. So I would just pick up my guitar and I would record whatever came to mind and I'd sing along to it. So I actually have 10 songs that I don't know what I'm going to do with. Um, and they're not, I don't think they're bad. Um, it's just different. It's not what I usually do, but it was just something to keep my mind away. So I would do that, and then I'd come back and keep writing because, or whatever I was doing, I would keep generating literature. Um, because if you do anything for long enough, it just you, it loses its. I, I I was able to do it for six hours the first day, and then after that, it just became these spurts of forty minutes, and then I couldn't do it any longer because I was I was sick of it. I wanted to you know break the computer. I would leave the computer on, and it it, it crashed three times. But I had I had it set up where. Every time I did anything, it would save every 10 seconds. So I didn't lose anything, but it, was that, it just showed the, I mean, how intense the programming was or how involved it was and how, much it, how many resources it was using because it was using a lot of the RAM. And I actually did build my own computer, so I knew that it was going to do the best it could do. 
Uh, but even my precautions and me trying to fail safe this did not stop it from crashing, which was interesting to me because I didn't think it would crash, but it eventually did three times. And I think I posted each of those on Twitter. So that was part of the process as well. As a joke, I wanted to put a screenshot of the computer crashing, but I was like, yeah, that's too gimmicky. I'm not going to do that. That was our conversation with Mike Klein. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And here is him now reading the piece he brought to share with all of you. So this piece is called An- Anhedonia Everything. Um, I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. Um, but it's the story of this writer called Andre who has problems feeling anything or feeling any type of feeling. Um, and he's a writer for a music magazine. And he goes to this concert. And for the first time in a long time, he actually begins to feel again. So this is actually the middle part of the piece. So I'm just going to read the middle part. Um, and um, yeah, that's it. The artist appears around 11.16 p.m. There's smoke and fog and haze and purple lights. The artist begins his set with what Andre would later describe to Sarah as soft and simple music. Just floating organ sounds scattered with swatches of heavily reverbed pads, almost like a sound check, a lot of it unassuming. Let it be said, Andre is not impressed by any of this. But then it picks up a little bit after a few minutes, and the music itself turns out to be pretty good. Andre realizes that in a live setting, the artist's music is nothing like the iTunes tracks he previewed. The music becomes much more powerful, more immediate, visceral even, almost palpable. The music is loud and enormous. On stage, the artist's setup is minimal. You might never think a table with just a handful of custom synthesizers, an organ, some some cassette decks, and a few effect pedals could produce such great sounds. Andre stares hard at the artist. Compared to a more dynamic performance from like, say, a rock and roll band or even a full orchestra, Watching just one guy on a stage for something like 90 minutes, just pushing buttons and turning knobs might feel or seem like an uninteresting activity to the layperson, but to Andre, this was heaven. The cold electronic blips, the distant ambient washes, the high-definition surround sound atmospheric, the languid synthesizer swells, the deep rumblings of the organ, the oversaturated tape hiss, the dripping cavernous echoes, the otherworldly wind chime sounds, the hazy buzzing effects, the hushed murmur and din of unintelligible human voices and side conversations happening at the same time, the waves of static. It didn't matter to Andre anymore what anyone had to say about music. This artist was a prophet. And it was at this point that Andre began to have a moment of higher consciousness. Andre closed his eyes and succumbed to the ambience of it all. He let the sounds transport him to distant places. Andre thought about the universe, his essay that he was writing on an artist, another artist, about his interminable desire for recognition, about his love for all things, his passion for deep research, about his failings and all his abandoned projects throughout the years, his broken dreams, his student loans, his noticeable lisp, 
his receding hairline, and about everything his boss Martha had said about his work. Andre saw planets, a parallel universe with colors extending far beyond the visual spectrum, a place that should never have existed where Andre and everyone else was made of metal and archaic circuitry. Images upon images of broken statuettes and floor plans of destroyed museums. Andre saw the beginning of the universe. He heard planets exploding. He witnessed black holes disappearing and then reappearing again. More planets exploding and then moons and atmospheres and rain clouds and dust storms and undiscovered pressure systems and earthquakes and tsunamis and interminable warp barriers. Andre tried to open his eyes in an attempt to escape these terrible visions, as he now felt as if he was about to have another panic attack. But all Andre could see when his eyes opened was fire and smoke and clouds and dust and bright lights. And then all of a sudden, almost out of nowhere, bass sounds exited the room. What was left was just pure white static, empty warped cassette tape sounds, and the sound of a foghorn off in the distance, all warbled and massive by sheets and layers of dense pink and white noise, and then nothing else. Andre felt like he couldn't breathe. He grabbed at his face because it hurt so much. But the artist bowed to the crowd. Andre cried. And that's our episode. Thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you next month. Until then, if you want to contact the show, noisemakerjoe at gmail.com put WTR in the subject line and the Patreon is patreon.com slash WTR some good stuff in there all of the contact info for Mike Klein will be in the show notes so make sure you check those out because you don't want to miss anything that he has going on and until next time Write more and write better.